you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. Good morning. Um, yes, so um, uh, I work for the church here. Before I did that, I used to work in marketing. And um, for a while, I uh, did some freelance marketing. And, um, one of my jobs was to work for a Christian charity and um, kind of help them to sort their website out and their kind of online stuff and to help them try and develop some content for their website. And um, one of the things that we did was that we had a, a series which we called What Makes a Good Sermon? Um, and I would kind of interview people who were, you know, leading big churches or well-known or something and kind of ask them lots of questions about how to make a good sermon. And um, once I had to go and interview a guy um, in East London, and he's kind of young, you know, one of those like up-and-coming, vaguely famous kind of Christians. And, um, and one of the questions that I asked him about what makes a good sermon um, was how he prepared. Um, and so I said to him, what would you do? if you were dropped in it at the last minute and all you had was a verse and you had to preach on it. And he said, well, how last minute? And I said, I, you know, a couple of days before maybe. What would you do if you were dropped in it last couple of days? And he, he said, well, it, it would never happen. And I said, but come on, like, so somebody, you know, he said, well, maybe I'd, maybe I'd get a week's notice, but that would definitely be the shortest time that anyone could ever think about preparing a sermon. So yesterday morning, Dave texted me, <laughs> and he said, I'm not very well. Anyway, so last week, um, Steve looked at uh, these words that two more read to us, a scandal for the Jews. We're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Yes, so Steve looked at a scandal for the Jews and explored a bit about what we preach Christ crucified actually means and how that doesn't actually tell the whole story and how we preach Christ crucified actually doesn't matter that much unless it's followed by a story about Jesus's resurrection. So today we're going to focus, as Leanne said, on the response of the Greeks to this idea of preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Gentiles, or as we've called it, stupidity to the Greeks. So what does Paul mean by this? It's one of those quotes that we probably, those of us who have grown up in the church, have probably heard it quite a number of times. I don't know whether we've really kind of explored it or tried to understand it. And so to do that this morning, we're going to look outside of the Bible. We're going to do some historical work. And we're going to start with a guy called Aristotle. 400 years BC, there was a man called Socrates. He was a great Greek philosopher, the father of much modern thought. And Socrates tried to answer the big questions. How should we live? What makes a person good? So Socrates had two disciples, one of which was Plato, and Plato had his own apprentice called Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle also tried to answer these big questions of Socrates. And Aristotle taught that the answer to the big question, how are we to live, was that you needed to adopt certain virtues and that these virtues arise out of the story that you believe. Aristotle believed that we needed to find the right goal that we needed to find what's called our telos, our right way to live. We need to find that story, the story to believe in and to live by. And this underpinned the rest of what he taught. 
this was the starting point. Find the big story. Find what it is that you're going to live by. Now, one of the interesting things about Aristotle's uh, views was that he believed that you had to find this big story, that that was much more important than rules. He said you couldn't live by rules. Rules weren't actually there to help you. Everyone lives outside that. You need a bigger story, a bigger story than trying to live by rules. Rules aren't enough. They can't inspire you to fully live your life. Uh, in another job that I had, I used to write some articles for a Christian website that was aimed at um, kind of helping Christians in their 20s and 30s. And um, one day they, um, they tweeted, uh, uh, retweeted a, a blog post written by a married pastor in Ohio in the States. It was called How Not to Have an Affair. And it was his rules, his five rules. And if you followed these five rules, you would not have an affair. The rules were a bit crazy, to be honest. Um, one of the rules was that he never had a meeting with uh, a woman on his own, ever. He would never give a woman a car ride unless there was another man present. And every single email that he got from a woman, he would share with his wife, which does sound pretty terrible for his poor old wife, apart from anything else, doesn't it? You know, I get about 100 emails a day from Rebecca about the food bank. I've not shared one of those with Louise. <laughs> No, nor would she want to read them. So, um, he, we, so we tweeted out this article and asked for what people thought about it. And I replied to the tweet to say this. Only last week did I manage to have lunch with a friend of mine, female friend of mine, and not sleep with her. Go me. Um, <laughs> the thing about this blog post is that creating rules around boundaries about marriage, it misses the whole point, doesn't it? Putting in boundaries on platonic relationships, those rules don't stop affairs, do they? The rules might make the affair more difficult, but it doesn't actually stop it. So the guy could just not share the email with his wife. He could just get another email address. He could just text her. There's loads of ways around the rules. If the reason that you're not having an affair is because of the rules, you've missed something, haven't you? As Aristotle said, rules don't work. We need to find something bigger to live by than rules. Aristotle said that we need to find our own big story. And then we found our big story. We can then work out which virtues we need to develop to allow us to live according to that big story. We find our big story. Then we work out what virtues we need to develop in order for us to live out that big story. Aristotle had nine virtues. They were all to do with wisdom and knowledge. And he said that the greatest of all virtues that a man could have was wisdom. Now, some of what Aristotle taught was helpful. Things like, he said, you could only live well if you turned those virtues into habits rather than just believing stuff. You needed to turn those beliefs into practical things that you could practice every day. I still think that's helpful advice, isn't it? I like this quote from an author, Paulo Coelho, who says, the world is changed by your example, not your opinion. It isn't your beliefs that change the world. It's what you actually do. That's what counts. We all believe that money doesn't make us happy, that there's more to life than owning things and being rich. And and then we spend too much money, don't we, buying things we don't need. And we work all the hours we can to try and earn a bit more money. The world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. So Aristotle had some useful things to say, but I think the problem with it is that he had the wrong big story. So Aristotle lived in the Greek 
world with the Greek gods, Zeus, the god of war, Poseidon, Hades, these were gods of war, of jealousy, of anger. And so Aristotle's virtues were all about power and control, all about making yourself more powerful, giving yourself more control. So it's in this context that Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a, a big, rich, important city. It was on a crossroads, which meant that it had lots of trade. Um, it had the largest population in Greece, and the majority of the church in Corinth that Paul was writing this letter to was Greek. These people would have known Aristotle. They would have been brought up with his teaching, with his writing, and they would have been well aware of all of this stuff. So Paul writes to them to tell them about Jesus' death. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Gentiles, stupidity to the Greeks. Why was Jesus' death stupidity to the Greeks? Well, today's Palm Sunday. Leanne told the story earlier about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the Messiah, the saviour of the Jewish people. He didn't arrive in the city riding a chariot with his soldiers surrounding him, a show of power. He rode in on a donkey. And then, the bit we'll look at next week, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the human representation of the heavenly power that created the whole world. He allowed humans to hang him on a cross and kill him. And Paul is telling this story to the Greeks, to the Greeks who have grown up with Zeus, the God of war. Growing up being told that gods are powerful, that gods gain power, that they don't give it away, they don't allow themselves to die. They've grown up with Aristotle who says that in order to become the best version of yourself, you need to work out what virtues you need to develop and work on them so that you can become more powerful, be more in control. Of course, preaching Christ crucified was stupidity to the Greeks. Of course it was. Jesus sacrifices himself on a cross. It's the opposite of what the Greeks would have aspired to, the opposite of what we still sometimes aspire to, isn't it? Success, winning, power. It's the opposite of that. Do you see how this story would have been unheard of to the Greeks who were hearing it? Gods weren't supposed to lose. They definitely weren't supposed to allow themselves to lose. A bit later in his ministry, Paul writes another letter to another church in a place called Galatia. Galatians 5, 22, say these words, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Paul's nine fruits of the spirit were written partly in response to Aristotle's nine virtues. Aristotle's virtues are all internally focused. They're focused on you becoming better, But the fruits of the Spirit and the basis of what we talk about, and we talk about the nine habits often in this church, the fruits of the Spirit, they look outwards. They're for the benefit of the community, for the church, and for those beyond. What does living well really look like? Does it look like working on habits that will increase your power, increase your control? Or does it look like working on habits that look outwards? Habits which are for the benefit of those around you. And just as we finish, what does this mean for our big story, the story that we live by? 
Aristotle said that before we worked out what virtues we needed to work on, we needed to know what big story we were living by. Dostoevsky wrote that he who has a why can cope with almost any how. If we have a why, if we know the big picture, if we know what our big goal is, then it's much easier to cope with the disappointments that some days bring. So as we end, what story are you living by? What's the big picture for you? What's the overarching story which calls you? Because I think, if we're honest, I think we're probably all a bit more influenced by Greek thought than we like to say we are, aren't we? Like the Greeks, we can all spend a bit too much time thinking about money and power and hierarchy and status and all of those kind of things. What story are you living by? If you were to write a story right now about who you are, where you're heading, and what you would like to achieve, what would that story be? At home, I, um, I have this quote written on a board above my desk, um, written by Kia Hardy, who is a, an MP and also a, a Methodist lay preacher. It says this, I am an agitator. My work has consisted of trying to stir up divine discontent with wrong. I am an agitator. My work has consisted of trying to stir up a divine discontent with wrong. I have that on my wall because that's part of the story that I try and live by. What's my story? Nathan Jones, 39 years old. I try to be a good dad. I try to live a bit more like Jesus and I try to encourage other people to do that as well. And I try to stir up a divine discontent with wrong. Some days I'm miles away from that. Other days maybe I'm a little bit closer. But that's part of my big story. What story are you living by? You might think that the story that you would write would seem foolish. You might think that your dream is too big. Steve once told me that when he had the idea that Oasis should start running schools, he went to see the board of trustees, um, and some people on the board of trustees laughed at him. So what do we know about running schools? Oasis can't run schools. 20 years later, we're the second biggest multi-academy trust in the country, and we run 52 schools. It was a foolish idea that came true. We preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Gentiles. As our verse tells us, some of the best things can seem foolish to some. So I just want to encourage us as we end this week to take some time to answer that question. What story are you living by? What's your telos? What's the big picture that you want to live by? How can you tell a different story to the Greeks? A story that's not based on following ideas of power, of wealth, of control, but a story of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, 
and a story of sacrificial love. What story are we living by? You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.